It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, what a time, what an interesting era to study. I mean, you think about it. A country is polarized by political, racial, and cultural divides. There's a Kennedy running for president, a former Republican vice president running for president. There's a Democratic incumbent who many people think is a bit past his prime and probably shouldn't run for office again. America's involved in a foreign war overseas. There's a major candidate for president who runs his campaign on a populist, anti-elitist, anti-establishment platform whose detractors say is running a divisive campaign using racial dog whistles. The year, of course, is... 1968. While I know there are a lot of parallels to today, some people say 1968 was the year that broke politics. If that's true of 1968, what in the world is 2024? Here to help us uh, figure that out is a historian and author who's written a fascinating new book about this year. And if history isn't repeating itself today, it certainly seems to be rhyming. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Luke Nichter, professor of history at Chapman University and author of The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968, which uh, just came out a few weeks ago. Luke, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So when you started writing this book, did you recognize immediately all of the parallels to what's happening today? Well, first, let's begin. Do you accept kind of my premise that there are a lot of parallels between 1968 and 2023 slash 2024? I'll just be honest, as I was hearing you do the intro, I thought, well, which year is he talking about, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now or back then? Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know that history always repeats itself exactly, but I, I think there's there's an awful lot in common to talk about. I remember Nixon's longtime speechwriter, Ray Price, always said, if the 1860s was an actual civil war, the 1960s were a proxy civil war. And certainly more and more people say something similar, you know, about America today. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of similarities, but I think there's also a few differences. Certainly, the Vietnam War and the draft, you know, that tore the country apart back then, is different. The assassinations, I mean, just hearing Tucker and President Trump talk about that possibility is, I hope, a place that we don't go. Uh, so I think there are differences as well, but also an awful lot of similarities. So when you started writing this book, did you recognize all the parallels to today, or was it just did it just kind of work out this way? that you started writing about this era in history, and here we are. Hey, you know, I I could sit here and say uh, I was so brilliant that I anticipated all this, but it wouldn't be true. You know, I I think something about the culture wars, to use that term, of the Trump years, I think did did provide a chance to revisit, you know, the the culture wars of a previous period, the 1960s. Certainly, you know, the Nixon era has gotten such a fresh look in history as a result of President Trump's presidency, the parallels between those two, the friendship that they had. Uh, but obviously, I, I could not have predicted, you know, I started this about five years ago, so there's no mm. way I could have predicted all that, 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 that went on in the last few years. So why did you write this book? I know you've written about this era in history before, but why write this book specifically? What were you hoping to explore? 
I, I kind of started out with just a general sense. You know, it's it's fifty. This is fifty five years ago, so it seems like a long time ago. But a lot of people remember that period. They were on the college campuses. They served in the war. They were drafted. And a lot of times in history, it takes about fifty years for us to have a kind of more mm. dispassionate look to kind of comb through, make sense of what really happened, for records to be declassified by the National Archives, for personal papers and diaries and things like that to be opened. So it just seemed like it was time for a, for a fresh look. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because so often if I'm at a bar or a party or just in polite company somewhere, inevitably people know my interest in politics and my interest in history. And someone will ask, what do you think? Who do you think the greatest president of all time is? And who do you think the worst president of all time is? And I always say, you know, I refuse to even consider anybody that's been president in the last 30 years because inevitably there's someone that thinks either Trump or Obama is the worst president of all time or the best president of all time, but it, they're doing that with without any historical context, just based on kind of where the political winds of the day are now. Now, of course, you got to add uh, Biden to the mix because he is a, a hero to some and a villain in other quarters. Um, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Luke Nichter. He's a professor of history at Chapman University, author of the new book, The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968. Let's talk about that title, Luke. Why do folks refer to 1968 as the year that broke politics? How did it break American politics? Well, you know, uh, you know, with your knowledge of history, um, it was just a time period that at home in this country and really around the world that people were just stirred up for a number of reasons. Uh, unrest, you know, looting in the streets, assassinations. At the time, the nation's longest war in Vietnam, a half million troops uh, over there in Southeast Asia, the draft dividing the younger generation and the older generation. Uh, I, I think, and but to focus on politics. At the nation, it was a time much like today, closely divided, and within each political party, a lot of division uh, in terms of the, the way to move forward. A lot of uncertain. Both people in both parties. Uh, you know, sort of unhappy with their alternatives, their options, you know, at the voting booth. So I think a a lot of similarities there. But ultimately, it goes to that image that I have in the cover, that kind of silhouette of Johnson and Nixon in the White House. At the heart of this book, you know, the most controversial argument that I make is that Johnson ultimately preferred Nixon as his successor. Uh, and and you know that and I think in modern history, it's hard to find two presidencies that are more connected. Uh, the war certainly continued on into Nixon's first full term. Uh, so much of Nixon's uh, Johnson's domestic policy, you know, Nixon gets the credit for a lot of things: going to China, going to Moscow. It was Johnson who first suggested these things. And so Nixon's presidency, I think, is unusually so, like really a continuation of things that Johnson ran out of time, ran out of political capital to do. And at the heart of that most controversial argument that he preferred Nixon as a successor is is some of the new evidence at the heart of the book is Reverend Billy Graham's diary. Uh, This is the first book to feature that, and I've only been allowed the Graham's obviously part of it and reproduce it here in the book. And Graham operated as a messenger between Johnson and Nixon, California Governor Ronald Reagan, former President Eisenhower. He passed messages back and forth, and the content of those messages are in the diary. And that's what allowed me to make that argument that that while Johnson publicly was a proud Democrat, I don't think he would have switched parties like a lot of other Southern Democrats. Uh, I don't know how he voted. 
But I think he ultimately came to see Nixon as better as a successor for his own personal legacy. You know, that is interesting. And you do reproduce some of the Billy Graham diary, which is not even produced in Billy Graham's authorized biography, where the biographer supposedly had access to everything that he wanted. There's even more stuff in your book that's not in that Billy Graham book. I want to get back to that uh, LBJ-Nixon relationship in uh, just a second. But you deal largely with four primary characters and personalities in the book. You deal with Hubert Humphrey, who was the vice president and the Democratic nominee for president in uh, 1968. You deal with Richard Nixon. You deal with George Wallace and you deal with Lyndon Johnson. Let's talk about Lyndon Johnson, because uh, Biden came of age at a time in politics where uh, where Lyndon Johnson was very much not a part of history, but a part of the present day. Talk to me a little bit, if you can, about the similarities between uh, Joe Biden and Lyndon Johnson, either as presidents or as people. Well, you know, I, I, I could add one more thing to your intro at the beginning of our conversation. I would also add, you know, a, a deeply uh, unpopular president, especially in his own party, uh, you know, looking ahead to a possible reelection uh, in terms of an LBJ, you know, Biden parallel. You know, I, I think Biden is obviously has a lot of pressures from the, the activist wing of his own party to do certain things policy-wise. But, you know, most of the time in U.S. history, if you show me a Delaware senator, I'll show you basically a good Southern senator, mm. a good Southern Democrat. Um, I remember working on the Hill out of college in the Speaker's office, and I know I, don't, I didn't think Joe Biden had a had a radical bone in his body. Uh, and I think Johnson also tried to govern kind of as as a centrist. And the, the way that I deal with Johnson in this book is different. Uh, my take is different on a lot of things. Most books about 1968, as soon as Johnson, as March 31st, goes on television, says he's not going to run, he's not going to accept the nomination, um, you know, kind of a postscript at the end of a speech that was on Vietnam. It surprised everybody that he did it that way. And I, I think most books at that point treat him like a lame duck. Uh, the spotlight focuses on all the challengers. That's where the excitement is. I found something different in a lot of the new evidence, tapes, diaries, et cetera, that Johnson by, Johnson, by withdrawing from the ballot, that was not a withdrawal from politics. He simply redirected his energies into influencing the choice of his successor, because your successor as a president has a lot to do you know, with your own legacy and history. And I think that's what Johnson became obsessed by in his final months. Very interesting. Uh, Luke Nichter is my guest, and uh, we're talking about the 1968 election, including some parallels to today's election. Would Lyndon Johnson have helped the Democrats win in 1968 if he had gotten out a bit earlier? Did he stay in too long uh, before allowing a, I don't know, either a proper Democratic nominating contest to take shape where maybe somebody that would have had more crossover appeal than Humphrey ultimately did would have been nominated? Uh, Was that a tactical mistake if your interest was getting the Democrats elected? Yeah, that's a superb question. And of course, you know, we, those of us who love history, we never consider what ifs, you know, or counterfactuals, but we love them. And you set that up nicely because um, at that time, first of all, I would answer it two ways. First of all, that was a different era. And if you look at the rules for the the, the Democrats had in 1968, they, they didn't change yet. They changed in 72 and 76 under the McGovern Commission. So in 68, you really didn't need to enter primaries. It really wasn't binding in the same way on delegates. 
there weren't any high-level presidential debates whatsoever that year that could have probed candidates in their campaigns or weaknesses. And, and when Humphrey ultimately sort of ran in Johnson's place, he inherited overwhelmingly Johnson's delegate strength and, of course, the loyalty of all the state and county chairmen coast to coast. So it was just different. It, I think we selected candidates, uh, not chose nominees. I don't want to call it a backroom deal. It, this is how things were done in that era. So it was a little bit different. And I think the second thing I, I, I would say in response to your question is people sometimes say, you know, what could Hubert Humphrey have done to have won that campaign? Uh, well, I think one of the easiest things was, and as a running mate, rather than Maine, kind of moderate Democratic Maine Senator Edmund Muskie, if he had like had like an outgoing Texas Governor John Connolly, very close to Johnson, as a running mate, then Humphrey would have gotten more of that conservative vote, denied it to Nixon. And that's the kind of thing he could have done that, that might have got him over the finish line. But again, Billy Graham. The Billy Graham diary says that he intervened with Connolly in Chicago kept him off that ticket. Now, I don't know that it would have happened without Graham's intervention and said in a future Nixon presidency, he'll give you, John Connolly, a Democrat, a cabinet post. And he did. Wow. He became Treasury Secretary in 71. Well, you know, so there's all kinds of new things in this diary. It's funny when you when you mention the similarities policy wise to from Johnson to Nixon. I was thinking of the similarities personnel wise from Johnson to Nixon. And uh, obviously Connolly, who was very close to Johnson, ultimately became a leading member of the Nixon administration. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan also mm-hmm. very, you know, big part of the Johnson administration, then became a very part, a big part the Nixon administration. And uh, so it's funny that Connolly was the first person that came to mind when you mentioned that and that you referenced that uh, that kind of Billy Graham intervention in brokering, um, you know, brokering Connolly's role uh, in a Nixon administration. A lot of folks remember what occurred in 1968, uh, not as history, but they remember it back when it was current events. And Eugene McCarthy was the first person to challenge Johnson largely on a, a peace platform, deciding to run against a president of his own party. Ultimately, the momentum that Eugene McCarthy got, which was substantial, a lot of movements, especially on college campuses to get clean for Gene, that kind of thing. That energy largely seemed to be channeled by Robert Kennedy, who seemed somewhat inspired to get into the race because of the momentum that Eugene McCarthy had. When Kennedy was killed after the California Democratic primary in 1968, why then was there not a second wave of momentum for Eugene McCarthy. Why was Humphrey able to capture the the mantle of the party? Does it have to be just alluded to the kind of how the nominating contest was back then? Or is there another factor that I'm missing? It's a great question. I, you know, I think if you look at McCarthy, uh, in most of the books that have written, written, written about the McCarthy campaign or the Kennedy campaign were written by staffers. So you can tell where their loyalties are. But when you sort of take a more objective calm through this time period, I'm not really convinced that McCarthy wanted to be president. I think he was running more against the presidency than for it. He, he wanted to be disruptive. He wanted to have a real debate about Vietnam, as you said, outreach to young people on college campuses. He, he took all the risk by being the first one to challenge the incumbent. Nobody will do that today with Biden. I mean, I'm waiting for that to happen. But then Kennedy waited. He waited for McCarthy to take the risk and then capitalized on that. I think a lot of old-time Democrats resented him for coming in, competing with McCarthy for basically the same wing, the same votes and the same wing of the Democratic Party, dividing the party uh, more. 
But I think what you see is I went back to the Gallup polls. And while Vietnam is always a concern of voters, after the assassinations, Dr. Martin Luther King in early April and then Senator Kennedy in early June, people begin to flip. Vietnam is always there as a primary concern, but Gallup begins to break out these individual domestic categories, crime, unrest, looting, arson, violence. And after the assassinations is the first time that added together, they overtake Vietnam. And that largely stays that way until November. So I think it was really a shift back to us to issues that were ultimately unfavorable. McCarthy was run on an anti-war campaign. And I think people either dropped out of politics or their concerns changed after those two assassinations Mm. that spring. It makes sense. Talking with Luke Nichter. Let's talk about Richard Nixon. Ultimately, he, of course, was the victor in 1968. Uh, Richard Nixon um, was out of politics. He had not only lost the presidency in 1960, he tried to run for governor of California, lost and uh, said very famously that it was his last press conference. You wouldn't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore and was largely written off. One of the major TV networks did a whole special about the I forget what they called it, but it was something along the lines of the political obituary of Richard Nixon. For those reasons, Pat Buchanan, who was with Nixon during that 1968 campaign, wrote a book called called The Greatest Comeback, and he maintains that Nixon's election in 1968 is, bar none, the greatest political comeback in American history. Based on your research for this book, do you share that view? Was Nixon's win in 1968 the greatest comeback? I think it's unique in, in U.S. history. I mean, Nixon was a loser. I think he wondered himself whether he was a loser. And he spent what's been called the wilderness years, those years, you know, as you said, the very close loss in 60 to Kennedy and Johnson, the more decisive loss in 62 for the California governorship. He spent the next five years or so reading, studying, learning, I think maturing. And he came back. He was calmer. He was less partisan. Um, I, I thought a bit almost like President Trump on the Tucker interviews spoke with a detachment, kind of a personal detachment. Uh, Nixon in 68 was very different than earlier. And I think ultimately he was a better candidate. And I think I would, I would add one more point. Yeah, I always say to my students, I, I teach a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, if you show me any election and you show me one of the candidates is either the sitting vice president or someone very close to the outgoing president, they've got the hardest job. Because think about how awkward that is to formulate around a meaningful campaign theme. On the one hand, you're saying everything we did for four years or eight years is perfect, but somehow we have more ideas (laughs) that haven't been done. The cynics said, well, it's so great. Why didn't you do them already? Nixon had that challenge in 60 with Eisenhower. He's never able to really get it together. Humphrey had that challenge with Johnson in 68. So I think right from the beginning, I think Nixon had that additional edge. And people voted, I think, for Nixon to turn the noise level down, to get to escape the chaos. Nixon's political rise occurred before the chaos of the 1960s. He wasn't tied to it. You couldn't blame him for it. And I think people wanted the noise level turned down. If you look at that campaign of 1960, where it's Nixon versus John F. Kennedy, they're very similar on the issues, both domestically and internationally. In fact, it could really be argued that Kennedy was a bit more hawkish on foreign policy than Richard Nixon was. In 1968, it it seems like it was a bit more of a conservative Nixon that emerged in 1960. Uh, Explain to us kind of the ideological differences between the Nixon campaign of 1960 and the Nixon campaign of 1968. 
Well, I think you set it up great there. You know, Kennedy had this, uh, not to dwell on him too much, but Kennedy had this technique that late in the campaign, he would flip to the right of the Republican, and it would just throw off the Republican who didn't know how to come back from that. He did it with Nixon in 60, and he did it in the Massachusetts Senate race in 52 against Henry Cabot Lodge, where he blamed Lodge for being a rubber stamp on Truman foreign policy. Very strange strategy for a Democrat, and it works. Nixon, I think, saw... In 60, he was really the heir to Eisenhower, kind of a a centrist, almost a liberal kind of Republican. And then I think he saw the pendulum for the party go the other way in 64 to Goldwater. So I think Nixon knew in 68 he needed to be somewhere in between the two and really ride that center lane. See, Republicans have a harder challenge, a much narrower road to to the finish line than Democrats. Democrats always win by, by party registration advantage. All Democrats need to win is Democrats to vote. Republicans need all Republicans, a good chunk of independence, and some crossovers. It's a harder message to cobble together. So Nixon tried to choose that center lane that put Humphrey on his left, Wallace on his right, and really go after the moderates, the LBJ moderates, who put LBJ over the top in 64. I think Nixon sensed that their votes were up for grabs in 68. And, of course, those same moderates put Nixon over the top in a landslide 72. In um, you alluded to the fact that uh, Johnson might have actually favored Nixon and that uh, Nixon's administration was largely a continuation of the Johnson administration. Why do we think Johnson would have favored Nixon over his own vice president? Do we think it was primarily over policy areas where he might have preferred Nixon to Humphrey or was it more about cultural uh, similarities between the two of them, or was it about the relationship that that, those two men had that might have been stronger than Humphrey? Why would a lifelong Democrat, even privately, want a Republican, a lifelong Republican like Nixon, to win over his own vice president? Well, I think I make two comments. I I couldn't uh, answer that any better. I remember talking to one of LBJ's daughters, Lucy, about this. And what Lucy said was, you know, publicly, very different. Democrat, Republican, different personalities, governing styles, uh, policy preferences. But privately, they had these they had deep connections. Uh, both grew up in modest means. They knew they didn't go to prep school. They didn't go to the best colleges. They thought the national media looked down on them, party elites, the establishment. Where Lady Bird's diary at one point says, when Nixon visits the Johnson White House, you know, I heard Mr. Nixon say Georgetown dinner parties <laughs> with an inflection of voice that could have been Lyndon's. And so I think powerful forces, adversaries, you know, brought them together. But I think the way I would say it best is go back to Billy Graham in the diary. Mm. Uh, one of the messages that's passed between Nixon and Johnson is just after Labor Day. You know, back then, campaigns didn't go on all the time. Labor Day kind of began the high season of the campaign for those final months till November. And Graham passes a message from Nixon to Johnson in the Oval Office. It's an incredible message where Nixon makes a multi-point promise to Johnson, if if elected, that Nixon wouldn't criticize Johnson by name. He would give Johnson credit for Vietnam when it was all over. He would consult with LBJ in retirement and do everything Nixon could do to give Johnson a good place in history. It's incredible to think of something like that had leaked out. Uh, And I think it's exactly what Johnson wanted to hear at a time when many in his own party were criticizing him. And uh, as best we can tell, Nixon largely kept his word on all that to Johnson. I I think mostly. I mean, I would say not 100 percent. 
But I mean, there's Bill Sapphire, others constantly say, you know, Nixon would say, tone it down. He'd say something like, don't criticize Johnson. He's had it hard. Mm. Or, you know, I know it's awkward, but he's not hurting us. So don't go after him. Well, what can you tell me about their shared relationship with the head of the FBI at the time, J. Edgar Hoover? Well, they were, I think, both at different times neighbors, and I think ideologically they were pretty close. Obviously, very strong anti-communist, uh, some of the few supporters of the war all the way to the very end, you know, past the difficult years. Uh, so I think, you know, a real, certainly not afraid to use surveillance and, and creative techniques to keep an eye on adversaries. Uh, so I think, you know, very, very like-minded, uh, personal friends, you know, not just uh, close professional associates. Talking with Luke Nichter, his book is The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968. It's just a few weeks old. Everyone's talking about it, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading it as well. Luke, um, one of the candidates that people often forget was a candidate back in 1968 was the governor of California at the time, Ronald Reagan. He largely ran as a, a favorite son candidate of the California Republican delegation. Why was Reagan running in 1968? Nixon was from California as well. It seems like the two, Nixon and Reagan, knew each other at least a bit, going all the way back to uh, the late 40s. Why was Reagan running? Was he running to actually get elected president? Was he running to influence the direction of the GOP? Or was he running to boost his own future political purposes? Or is it for some other reason? Uh, possibly a combination of those. Uh, Reagan, again, the Graham diary, he, he did outreach to Reagan as well to kind of kiss Graham did not want to see that conservative vote divided, you know, whoever it would go to, ultimately Nixon. And Graham uh, talked to Reagan to kind of figure out what are your plans here? Uh, Reagan, of course, was the dream candidate for conservatives. There still are a few uh, 64 Goldwater Republicans around who are part of that campaign. And if you talk to them today, it's interesting. You would think that Goldwater won in 64. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they were happy to go over the cliff with Goldwater. And, you know, they feel like it was almost more important, finally, to, to nominate a real conservative uh, you know, in 64 than actually winning. And so the deal with Reagan was that if Nixon didn't have the nomination locked up, or at least on a, on a good path to having it locked up by about Wisconsin, uh, then Reagan would be free to move in. And I think he would have. Um, he wasn't b- quite battle-tested. This was Reagan of 68, not mm. Reagan of 80, who who was a much more mature politician. But I mean, the good looks, the money. I mean, this was Reagan in his in his in his real prime, and he ultimately loyally, you know, supported Nixon. Yeah, you know, but I think he was just kind of looking over Nixon's shoulder the whole time. And if Nixon had made you know too many errors, I think Reagan would have moved in. The um, I, I, you are just such a fascinating guy, and there's so many other areas that I want to explore with you, but I'm almost out of time. But uh, so you got to come back, and we got to continue soon. However, uh, there's a few other areas that I want to delve into with you before we before we run out of time here. I got to ask you about George Wallace. Uh, I think a lot of people know George Wallace as the governor of Alabama. He's been so uh, associated with segregation throughout history. He's been so associated with uh, racist tendencies that were big, particularly in the American South at that time. He won five states as a third-party candidate in 1968. Was there more to Wallace's campaign in 1968 than simply segregation and race? Yeah, I think there was. Uh, and, and Wallace, like a lot of the, the figures we're talking about, was not static. I mean, he was reacting to that, the events of that decade just like everybody else. 
And if you look at Wallace, it's interesting. His first run for governor was 58, and he was a moderate, and he loses. No mention of race or segregation. Right, he was fact, endorsed a, by the NAACP, if I recall. You got it. And yeah. 62, he shifts right. That's when he goes after the, the Klan uh, endorsement. Uh, his inaugural address, it's, you know, segregation today, tomorrow, forever. He will stand in the schoolhouse door personally to block integration at the University of Alabama. But as, as often happens, he gets a taste of national politics in 64, moderates his message, becomes kind of like a Huey Long populist demagogue, you know, conservative Democrat, um, and, and enters three primaries and does exceptionally well. 68 is his first full-bore 50-state campaign, does the impossible, gets on the ballot in all 50 states. To do that, you got to navigate 50 sets of state laws, 50 sets of legal challenges by Democrats and Republicans everywhere you go. He gets over 10 million votes. And I would argue his campaign is the most fascinating because all populists since on both sides of the aisle, more recently, I'd say Republicans with Trump, have borrowed from that Wallace playbook, anti-elite, anti-establishment. Uh, and and, uh, and I, you know, I don't think the phrase drain the swamp ever occurred to George Wallace, but if it had, I'm sure he would have used it. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Wallace had been a Democrat his whole political life and then in subsequent presidential elections went f- back to running for president as a Democrat. Why did he choose to run third party in 68 rather than run as a Democrat for president in 68? Yeah, Wallace's records, in uh, which are in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, at the State Library, what they say is that he wanted to be free to criticize both major parties. Uh, he had problems with both. He had problems that the Democratic Party had become a big government party. He thought go- government overreach was primarily a Democratic problem. He didn't like the Republicans in lots of ways, too. And part of that was heritage growing up in the South, which basically one party for decades. Um, So he wanted to be free to criticize both sides. And so that gave him the platform to do that. He ran on a on a ticket called the American uh, Independent, uh, Independent right. Party, exactly, which existed, but it was really just really a vehicle. It wasn't really a real political party. It was just a vehicle so he could run. That Because it's, it's a lot easier to pick a party that exists than also to create a party and then run on a third party. You wrote in your column, well, let me ask you this before we, uh, before we run out of time. If you had to pick, and maybe this is an unfair question, maybe it's not, President Trump, is he more similar and his candidacy today more similar to that of Nixon's in 68 or that of Wallace's in 68? Or for that matter, Humphrey? I think I think uh, there's a kind of Nixon-Wallace um, political continuum, and certainly Trump is somewhere in that, that continuum. He, he goes, for example, Lyndon Johnson was the last president to win the kind of blue-collar, lower-middle class. That's my background. I don't have, a, I don't have an elite background. Um, to win them as a voting block in 1964. It's amazing to me how much energy Trump has put into to winning, locking up that vote. That's Wallace, but it's also a bit of Nixon's silent majority, mm. which was the term he coined, which Trump borrowed heavily from in the past few years. So I, he's he's kind of a mixture. I mean, he, Nixon was an insider to politics. Trump is an outsider. Wallace is somewhere in between. So I think you combine those two playbooks. Uh, along with a very astute ability on TV, understanding of media, as as Trump has. And and I think that's how you get Donald Trump. If, um, well, I'll end with this for real. I'm way late here. But uh, you wrote in your column in the Wall Street Journal that Richard Nixon would not have been surprised by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How come? Uh, Did Nixon have a crystal ball that was lacking in the Biden White House? So this is an op-ed I wrote about a month ago in the Wall Street Journal 
uh, a letter from Nixon to Clinton. Fascinating seven-page letter. You can actually click on the letter and see mm-hmm. the actual letter with Bill Clinton's handwriting, and it's 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 really interesting. Nixon had just spent two weeks in Russia and in Ukraine and come back, and he knew the Russian leadership was in trouble. They were shifting right. They were looking more authoritarian. Yeltsin was in trouble. Nixon couldn't see what was coming next. I mean, Yeltsin was kind of – he made it for a few more years until 1999. The letter is from the, uh, 93, early 94. Nixon dies that year in 94. So Nixon didn't live to see Putin, uh, but he set it up perfectly in the letter that this is what's coming in Russia. Wow. So he predicted largely the rise of a leader like Putin and the kind of the uh, the foreign policy you know, ambitions that a leader like that would have. That's crazy. And uh, people can read it. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. People check it out. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Luke, is there any sort of political bent to your book? Are, are conservatives going to hate it? Are liberals going to love it? Or, or is it reverse? Or is this something that everybody will get something out of, do you think? Well, probably like you and, and, and some in the audience, when I see a new political book, that voice inside my head says, especially if it's an academic, what's the agenda right. here? You know, who's, well, who's the, the favorite? I, you know how these cynical talk radio listeners are. That's how they view the situation as well. But, you know, my background, look, I'm blue collar, uh, lower middle class, industrial Midwest and up in Ohio, Toledo area, popular with Wallace, but also Nixon, uh, Kennedy. I mean, it used to be called a purple state, although it went, Ohio went twice for Trump by eight points. I take a something-for-everyone approach. Uh, I had cooperation from all four major sides, Johnson, Humphrey, Nixon, Wallace. Talked to all the kids, the families, 85 staffers, and I present those sides. I think if one of those sides reads that only that part of the book, they would see it, and, and, and they, it would be something they would recognize and think that I could try to get it accurate. My goal was not to have an agenda. It was to, to really show why the American people voted the way they did. And I think for readers to do that honestly, you've got to show the candidates you know, the way that they would want to be uh, presented. Well, I can't wait to read the book, and uh, it's been great talking with you. I hope we could do this again soon. I'd love to. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. We've been talking with Luke Nichter. Uh, If you're interested in learning about uh, a little more about what we've been talking about, check out the new book. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are available. It's called The Year That Broke Politics. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 